So we're beginning a new series, and uh, I want to read a passage. It's kind of one of those passages that scholars have debated about a little bit, but it, they, the question they ask is, is Paul write, the Apostle Paul, is he writing this as a believer, or is he writing it bef- before he was a believer? And he writes these words, really striking, in Romans 7, verse 23. He says, there, But there is another power within me, that it is war, it is at war in my mind. The power makes me a slave to sin, the, the sin that's still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Now, I don't know about you, but I felt that way. There have been times in my life where I felt like, man, I should know better. I should, shouldn't have said that. I wish I hadn't done that. Why am I thinking this way? And, and then there's the opposite is like, I wish I was doing more you know why don't i want to do more and 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 that's exactly the the struggle paul was talking have you ever felt that way have you say man the things i don't want to do i do and the things i want to do i don't and that was his struggle and i don't think it's right paul's writing about uh his pre-christ time i think he's writing about his struggle as a follower of jesus christ so we want to we want to go through six chapter six through eight we want to talk about what does it mean what, what is going on here? What's Paul teaching us about the Christian life and how we can have victory over sin and, and how we can be changed and transformed? And, and, and it's a messy process. So let's review just a little bit. Romans 1 through 5, Paul basically just describes the power, the gospel. He says the power to God, uh, power of God. And it's salvation or the gospel is not received. It's, earn, it, it's, not, uh, it's received. It's not earned. You don't earn it. You don't try to work for it. It's a gift that God gives to you. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So he's saying, you know, so he gets this point across and he gets to chapter 6. And he's assuming that some of his readers are understanding grace. And they're saying, well, wait, Paul, if grace is true, if it's a gift and it really doesn't matter and it saves us when we sin, grace covers our sin. That means we should be able to go on and sin all we want. All we're doing is we're allowing God's grace to be poured out. So we're really doing God a favor by sinning. That was their logic. And Paul says, well, may it never be. Basically, the, their argument is, if we're saved by grace, then why worry about living a good life? And I've talked to people, maybe you've talked to them too, saying, well, I want to know about the gospel because I want to go to heaven. I'm not really interested in God doing anything in my life now, but I'll see God at death. He'll take me to heaven, and that'll be the way it is, and that's what I want. In other words, I want a ticket to heaven, and that's really all I want. And I want to live like hell, but I want to go to heaven. And that's kind of what this argument is all about. Paul basically says, if you're living that way, you absolutely do not understand the gospel. But more than that, you don't understand that God wants to transform you. God wants to change you. God wants to prepare you for heaven. And so real life transformation begins as we identify and change our inner master. And that's easier said than done. Every one of us has an inner master. It captures our heart. We live for it. We seek it. Uh, We desperately need it. It controls us. It becomes an obsession to us. And maybe you you don't even know what it is. We're going to try to identify it this morning. But the key to real victory, the key to life transformation, is to claim our new position in Jesus Christ. And so the question we need to ask this weekend is, who are we in Jesus? But let me just say this as we get started. 
I'm talking to those of you that have crossed that line of faith. I'm talking to those of you that said, I've called upon Jesus. I've asked Jesus to come into my life. Uh, Some people say, well, I go to church. I believe in God. Well, that's great. That doesn't make you a Christian. I'm talking to people that said, I realize that my only hope is Jesus Christ. And he got off of his throne. He came to earth. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. He climbed up on the cross and he died for my sin. He took my place. And I realize he's my only hope. And I realize unless I call upon the Lord. You know, John uh, chapter 1 verse 12 says this. That as many as believed in him, he gave the right to become the children of God. See, we're, you're, you may be born in the image of God. Maybe you were born and you are, we are all image bearers of God. But we're not all children of God. And that's a really important thing to get grasp. What, what Jesus is saying, or what John is saying in, in, in his, in his uh, first chapter of his gospel, he's saying we have to be born children of God. He goes on in chapter 3 and he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, how do I go back into my mother's womb? He's thinking of physical birth. And what was Jesus speaking of? He was speaking of physical or of spiritual rebirth. And so we all have to have a spiritual rebirth. And so my question is, have you had that? Have you crossed that line of faith? Have you called upon the Lord? If not, then this isn't going to make a whole lot of sense to you. But if you've crossed that line of faith, if you've called upon Jesus, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you've crossed that line of faith, then something new is taking place in your life. And that's what we want to describe in this series in November. So the question is, and the question we want to answer is, who am I as a follower of Jesus Christ? Who am I in Jesus? Who am I in Jesus? So there's two things we want to look at, and Paul covers these in Romans 6. In Jesus, I have a new identity. In Jesus, I have a new identity. Let's start reading. I'll start reading for you at Romans 6, verse 1. Paul says this, What then shall we, uh, should we keep on sinning so that God can show more and more of His wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined Him in His death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. Paul is is equating this new identity, this new union we have with Christ with baptism, with water baptism. Now, what's he saying about it? Water baptism says a few things. Number one, it says we're united with Christ. Paul basically is saying is, as you think of water baptism, as a person goes back into the water, and as they come out of the water, he's saying you are demonstrating your union with Christ, your union with his death, your union with his life. He's saying that there's a new connection, there's a new union, there's a new joining, and and by water baptism, you're demonstrating your connection, that when Christ died, you died. When Christ rose, you rose, in a sense. There's a mystical rising. There's a mystical dying. And it points to a a real physical dying and a real physical rising one day. Secondly, baptism points to our washing away from sin. You know, when we wash our hands, we put them, hopefully, under water, and we wash them up, and we wash our dishes, we we put them under water. And in a sense, what he's saying is when we go under the water, it represents that our sins have been washed away. It's a picture of the washing of, of when we come to Christ, that our sins are... You know, the one thing I remember when I asked Jesus, and I was about 18 years old, I was very religious at that point, went to church every week, went to confession once a month, 
but I wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ. I wasn't a Christian. And the one thing I remember, that when I called upon the Lord for the first time in my life, I felt forgiven. My sins were washed away for the first time. I walked out of confession many times and wondered, am I really forgiven? Am I really clean? Am I really washed? And, and baptism, Paul says, baptism is a picture that your sins are washed away. Number three, it's a, re- a reception of the Holy Spirit. The baptism is a picture that we have received the Holy Spirit. And we receive the Holy Spirit the moment we call upon the Lord. So the Bible clearly states that we are baptized into Jesus Christ, that we are connected to him, that there's a a new spiritual connection. There's a new relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. It's unbreakable. It's it's unchangeable. It's hard for us to comprehend, but uh, it happens. It's unalterable. It's unending. And it's with Jesus. And this union comes by faith. Uh, invisibly by faith, but it's signified by our baptism. Now, somebody has said that baptism is the wedding ring of our our salvation. And what is, uh, you know, when you when you uh, a bride and a groom come together, and we've had many on this stage who come together, and they say, I do to one another, they share their vows to one another. And then the pastor will say, do you have a symbol of your your commitment to one another, you say, yes, we have rings, and you wear rings. What is a wedding ring? It's not your vows. It is a picture of your vows. And so someone has said, and I think rightly so, that water baptism is a, an outward symbol of your inward faith, and, and it's an outward sign of your inward vows. So if you've never been water baptized, good reason to do it. It's like walking around as a Christian without a ring, or like if you're married, you walk around without a ring on, or walking around as a Christian without a ring on. So I could speak more about that, but we don't have that time to do that. But my point is, baptism speaks of our union with Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that we are invisibly linked with Jesus Christ, so much so that not only did we die with him and rise with him, we are right now seated with him in the heavenlies. We are seated with him in the heavenlies. Now you say, well, that's mind-blowing. Absolutely, it's mind-blowing. It's, it's beyond our uh, comprehension. Let me give you an illustration, and maybe it'll help you a little bit. Let's say uh, a young man and a young woman get married. And let's say the young man is a millionaire. I mean, he's just, he just got a tons of money. And let's say that the woman he marries is very poor. I mean, she can't even pay her cell phone. She doesn't have a cell phone. She didn't, and they get married. Now, Let's just take out our modern-day prenuptial agreement here and let's just say they get married and now automatically they both, they both walk down the aisle. The, husband, the, the groom walks down, the bride walks down, and they say, I do, and they exchange the rings, and the pastor says, I now pronounce you're a man and wife. She has gone from being poor to being rich in a moment. Immediately, she has become rich. She has become a rich woman. She was a poor woman when she walked down the aisle. Now she's a rich woman. She, what he has is, her, is hers. What is his is hers. What is hers is his. And that's that new union that has begun. And so that's the picture that Jesus and Paul is trying to express, that when we come to Christ, we have that type of a union with Christ, that we essentially, by grace, we get what he gets. When the Father looks at the Son, seated at the place of honor, he not only sees the Son, he sees us. We are held in high honor, just as the Son is held in high honor. Uh, Now, because of this union with Christ, uh, God begins to be work in transforming our lives. In other words, God's not interested in just making you one with his son and bringing us into this new union. He wants to transform us and change us. 
And I love the picture that uh, C.S. Lewis has. He pictures our transformation, our life transformation, like a, a house that you might have purchased. And he says this. Imagine yourself as living in a house. Uh, oh, no, let me read that again because I read it completely wrong. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abnormally and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it. You see what Lewis is saying? Lewis is saying that our dreams and our pictures and our desires are too little. What God wants to do in our life is not just save us so that we can one day go to heaven. He wants to change us and he wants to remake us. He, we have a picture of this little cottage and God says, no, we're going to build a palace out of you and I'm going to dwell with you. That's the picture that God has. And when we're united with Christ, Jesus, our new union with Christ means that God wants to do something amazing in our lives. Something incredible in our lives. He wants to do a total transformation of our lives. Now, the verses that I think really speak to this, uh, these, were, these were monumental in me coming to Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Let me read those to you. It says this, God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for it, for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. Now, those two verses were incredible to me because all my life I thought it was what I did and what I was doing. I was building a resume that one day I would give to God and say, well, God would look at it and say, that's very impressive. Get in here. And what I realized was it had nothing to do with what I was doing. It had everything to do with what he did when he got off of his throne, came to earth, died on a cross for me, and gave his life. It was a gift that he gave to me, and I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. I'll never repay it. I just opened it up and said, thank you. I'm helpless and I'm hopeless, and you're my rescue party of one, and you saved me. Now, that's what he says in, in, in verses 8 and 9. You're saved by grace. It's not of yourselves. You can't boast about it. It's a gift from God. But then he says this in verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm not interested in just getting you saved and getting you to heaven. I am working on a masterpiece. I'm working on a palace. I'm working on a mansion. And I'm going to begin the work the moment you step across that line of faith. The moment that as Jesus gave his life to you and you give your life to him and that new union begins, the work begins. So the first thing you have to understand, if you want to have victory in your life and you want that transformation, is you have to see who you are in Jesus Christ. You're united with him. Secondly, in Jesus, I have a new identity. Let's pick up the text, and this is rather lengthy, but if you'll stick with me, I think it will pay off in dividends as we move on. 
Verse 6. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. That's that union. In other words, he's saying it's not you're going to die. It says that you did die with Christ. There's this mystical union, this spiritual union. You died as he died. When he died, you died. And since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So that you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say this. Do not let sin control the way you live, but do do give in to do not give in to the sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God for you were dead, but now you have new life that phrase is so important. You were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. By the way, if I was going to memorize a passage of scripture, that would be incredible. But let's move on. Sin is no no longer your master for you. Uh, No longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well, then, since God's grace has set you free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? That's like verse one. Of course not. Don't you realize that you become a slave of whatever you choose to obey? You could become a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God once You were slaves to sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey the teaching we have given to you. Now, here's the point. Because I've been united with Christ, my old sin-controlled self is permanently abolished. I've begun a new chapter in my life. My old way of life is gone. The old way is gone. The new way begins. But I still struggle with sin. In Christ, I was raised and I'm seated at the heavenly places. I'm no longer the person I was. But here's the problem. We still struggle with sin. Have you noticed that? Now, I know there are some teachings within the Christian church to say, we, the minute we come to Christ, we may have a second blessing and then we'll never sin again. And, you know, I mean, that's not biblically taught because he basically says in the middle of that, not to sin and to, you know, and to don't let sin reign and, you know, don't use your, your body as instruments. So he's basically saying this is something you're going to struggle with. But that being aside, the scripture doesn't support that. Practical experience doesn't, doesn't support that. I mean, just ask somebody. I mean, you really think you can, you can walk around and you've never, you won't sin anymore? If you think you can go a month without sinning, tell somebody close to you, somebody you love, somebody you care about, I'm, going, I'm not going to sin for the next month. Watch me. Okay? And then say, now, when you see me sin... Tell me. Now, if a week goes by, I'll be shocked. And, and that's only what they can see. They can't see your head because the Bible says, Jesus says, if a man looks at a woman 
he doesn't have to commit adultery, but if he looks at a mo- woman in lust after her, he's already committed adultery in her heart. So that's all the sin you can commit without anybody seeing it at all. My point is, Paul doesn't promise us sinless perfection this side of heaven, but we know that. We know in practical experiences. Now, why is it that we have such words like sin was defeated, we're no longer under its power, we're free from sin, yet we still struggle with it? Well, you know what? Let me give you an illustration. We know at the cross that Satan was defeated, that the death blow was, you know, that Satan was defeated at the cross, but is Satan still alive and well? Yeah. Is he still powerful? Does he still have demons? Is, it, is there still good and evil going on in the world? Is there still that, that pushing? And then, you know, we have the flesh, the world, and the devil, right? And Satan, is, we, we don't, until we get to Revelation and, and the end of the world where God takes the devil and throws him into the lake of fire and is he's destroyed forever, he's still working. And he's still wanting to thwart God's plans, even though he knows it's a losing venture. But he's still trying. In the same way, folks, sin was defeated at the cross, but we're still working out that. Sin hasn't been thrown into the lake of fire. The, the two enemies of man are sin and death, and we're still experiencing both of those right now. But here's what he's saying in all of this. He's saying there was a day where, in your old way of life, where you could not say no to sin. He was your master. You had to obey. You were a born sinner. You didn't have to teach your kids how to say no or disobey. They got that. They were like acing that. It was manners and politeness and obedience. That was the one that takes time. And you wonder, is there ever going to get that? You know, they're getting C's and D's in that right now. But, you know, disobeying and language and stuff, they're getting A's in that. They're, like, accelerating in that. And I'm not teaching them. How do they get that? Well, that was the old way of life. That's the old way of life. But now it says we're this new way of life. But here's the point. Paul's saying you're still going to struggle with sin, but you don't have to have sin as your master. You can now say no to your master. You don't have to be dominated by it. We who are in Christ are now in a position where we can say no to sin. Now, he, basically, essentially, what I'm saying to you is this. Paul says over and over in this chapter, don't you know, don't you know, don't you know? And what he's saying to them is this. He's saying, the problem you have, the reason you, you're failing, the reason that, you're allowed, that sin is having such a dominant effect in your life is, you don't know these basic things, that you're a new person in Christ. There's this new identity that you have in Jesus Christ. You're a new person. What he has is yours. You're free, and, and you're free from sin. And what we have to do is take these two truths and say, I'm not who I was. That was the old way of life. I'm now on a new way of life. I was once dominated by sin, and I had a master I could say no. Now I can say no to sin. I have a power to say no. I have a new identity. And we have to meditate upon it. We have to tell us ourselves who we are in Christ. That we're, It's different. It's not like it was. That we're united in Christ. That we're dead to sin. Uh, we were slaves, but now we're not anymore. We must remember who we are. You see, we're all slaves to something. We're all slaves to something. No one is free. We're all born slaves. Uh, Becky Pippert out of the salt shaker, she wrote a book, and she said this, Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by a power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. So whatever we seek is our highest good is our Lord. Now, let me ask you, because maybe this is your struggle. 
We are born... Paul says this in Romans 12. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your spiritual act of worship. What, what, what Paul is essentially saying is, you have, a, you, you have a master to serve, and it's God. Offer yourselves to him. And that's, you're, you're regularly offering yourselves to God. You're, you're making a point of doing that. Here's why. Because we are born slaves to sin. Slavery is something that we get. But we have to determine what it... The question I want to ask you this morning is this. Who's your master? Now, most of us would say, well, God's my master, and I hope so. Theoretically, I hope we all say that. But practically speaking, my guess is there's other masters going on. Now, how do we determine what our spiritual master is? Well, I think it's, the way I found it's helpful is this. Ask yourself, what is it that you say, this is what I look to for my ultimate source of security, significance, and satisfaction in life? It may be money. It may be power. It may be influence. It may be physical attraction. It may be a relationship. We all live for something, and we need to identify what that something is, okay? Uh, that's why... Uh, Paul says this in Romans 6. We read this. Do not let sin control the way you live. Uh, uh, do not give in to sinful desires. So, a sinful desire, we think of it as, oh, that's sexual. No, it can be, but it's not. A sinful desire. Now, here's, here's what a sinful desire is. A sinful desire is, it can be a good thing. See, a good thing that becomes uh, an ultimate thing has become a sinful thing. A good thing that becomes an ultimate thing becomes a sinful thing. Let me give you a couple of examples. Approval. Approval is a good thing. We should want our parents to approve us. We should want affirm us and encourage us and say, that was a good job. You did a great job. That we should want that. And kids need that. And we, you know, you, you, kids need to be raised in an environment where they're affirmed, they're approved. And, and as, a, as, as a, 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 an employee, you love it when the boss says, hey, you did a great job. I really appreciate you. So approval is a good thing. Having another person, a friend, approve you, say, hey, you did a great job, or you're good at this, or you're pretty, or whatever. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. But if approval becomes not just a thing, but the thing, and you say, I've got to have approval. In fact, I've got to have approval from this person. Now what happens? I'm so obsessed with being with this person and the approval of this person, I'll do anything. I will, I will lie, I will cheat, I will do anything. I will violate my ethics so that I can receive the approval of this person. I will become a different person. What is your God? Your God is approval or fear. You say, well, I feel secure, I feel safe, I feel when I'm with this person or when I have this bank account or when I have this job or when I have the, you know, there are probably a lot of people on the East Coast said, I feel safe here. Today they don't feel safe. They lost everything. Just like that. Now, nothing wrong with having a house, nothing wrong with feeling safe and secure, but a safety and security is, 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 is your God. You say, I, I must have this. When that is threatened, when that, whatever it is, if it's a relationship or a thing or a, whatever it is, if that's threatened, what will happen is when, it, when, it begin, when you begin to lose it, when you begin to see it being taken away, your life comes apart. You say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm a mess. I've got to have that. 
what are we, what are we saying? That's fear. That's your master. Your master is fear. Your master is fear of losing this because it brings you security or sadness. You say, you know, I feel happy when I have this or when this person's around or when this is going on in my life and that. And, and so I, I really, and, and when you're, when you, when that is taken away, when that is threatened, whatever it is, you say, I, I, my life is over. I don't know what I'll do. I can't live. I can't live without this. I can't live without them. My life is all about them. And what you've just said is my master is this. You see, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an over-desire, it becomes a sinful desire. Now, why don't we live out our freedom? Why is it that we have this new identity with Jesus Christ, we're united with him, and we've been set free from sin? The power of sin no longer can tell us, jump, and we say, how high? We don't have to obey it anymore. Why do we still obey it? Well, let's think about this for a minute. Being free, being set free, and living free are not the same thing. Just because you're dead to sin doesn't mean, and you're free from sin, doesn't mean that you will no longer struggle with sin. Now, remember the the slaves in the United States about 100 years ago? uh, They were uh, in a state of slavery. Then the Civil War came. It resulted in the abolishment of slavery in the United States. And we all know that history. We all learned it in school. But what happened? What immediately happened? What actually happened? All the slaves, young and old, were given freedom. But many of the older ones who had endured long years of servitude found it very difficult to understand their new status. They heard the announcement that slavery was abolished and that they were free. But hundreds, if not thousands, remained slaves. In their experiences, many of them did not live out their freedom. When they saw their old master coming near, They began to quake and they began to tremble and they began to wonder whether they were going to be sold. In in other words, they they were free. They were legally set free. But experientially, they could not allow their experience to line up with their freedom, their legal freedom. Here's the point. You could still be a slave experientially even when you are no longer a slave legally. Whenever you feel, whatever you might feel, whatever you might experience, Uh, what your experience might be. God tells us here through his word that if we are in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. If we fall into sin, we do it simply because we do not realize who we are in Christ. We are united with Christ and we are free from sin. We are set free. Now, how can we live out our identity in Christ and freedom from sin daily? Three things and we'll close with this. Remember, we belong to him. You don't, he did not save you to go off on your own. We were purchased by Christ's blood, and we must remember that. We must stop stre- uh, um, treating ourselves as if we belong to ourselves. We owe Jesus our very lives and salvation. We cannot live in disregard for all he's done for us. So that's the first thing. You need to understand that you don't, he, didn't, he didn't save you to go off on your own. He saved you to make you and and make you into what he has a plan for. Secondly, remember that we can say no to sin. That sin ha- uh, we have been delivered out of the domination of sin. Sin is not too powerful to say no to. Uh, we have his spirit. We are now his children, united in Christ. And our old sinful desires, we don't have to follow them anymore. And then number three, remember that we have been saved with a purpose. Christ saved us so that we would not sin. Titus 2.14 says this, Christ gave himself for us 
to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now, if the, if the suffering and torture of Jesus was for that reason, any Christian who gives themselves to sin is forgetting why he saved us. We need to ask ourselves, will I defile the heart of Christ uh, that, that Christ died to wash? Will I trample on the very purpose of his pain? And will I thwart the very goal of his suffering? And we would answer, may it never be. He paid too big of a price for us to go around and just take it so lightly. Now, if you could see and think about your new freedom and identity in Christ and still sin, it shows that you don't understand the gospel, that your old self was never crucified, and that you're still thinking and looking at life the old way. In other words, if you come to Paul and say, well, if grace is going to abound with my sin, then I may as well go on and sin. And Paul says, if that's the case, you do not understand the gospel. Now, Augustine was an early church father, and he had a problem with sexual self-control. He had a lot of uh, mistresses, and one day, one of the mistresses came up to him and basically uh, wanted to have a fling with him. And he responded, no thank you. And she thought, well, maybe he doesn't recognize me. And so she said, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine replied, yes, I know, but it's not me. See, Augustine realized that he was a different person. He wasn't the old person who had to have a female, who had to be with women, who never really loved them and never really cared about them, who used them and they used him to try to fill a black hole in their lives. And he realized that was the old me. And that's not me anymore. I'm a different person. Augustine now uh, now had a new master, he now could say no to sin because he knew that God was remodeling his soul. And God wants to do the same in your life. So we begin our study and we say, if you want to have victory, if you want to have power over, uh, power over the power within, it begins by understanding who you are in Jesus Christ and understand that sin's power no longer has a right to control you. Let's walk in that freedom. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, help us to understand our new freedom from sin, that we in Christ do not have to say yes to sin. We have a new power over sin. Sin was defeated on the cross, Father, and we don't have to say yes to it anymore. But we also, Father, want to meditate on, we want to find, and we want to understand our new union with Christ. That what is His is ours. That we are no longer slaves. We are your children. We are your sons and daughters. We've been adopted. We, we are united with Christ. We begin a new chapter. Father, help us to live that new chapter of power and victory. And let the renovation begin. We pray this in Jesus' name.